Good to see you guys. Hey, if you have your Bibles, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 5. 1 Samuel chapter 5 is where we're going to be tonight. If you... Uh, if you're anything like me, this past weekend did not, uh, did not go by without you recognizing that it was a very special weekend. And it was the opening weekend of the NFL season this past weekend. Now, some of you are like, oh, I don't care about football. But hey, for the next you know, minute or so, you're going to care about football with me, okay? So uh, I, I love the game of football. It's a lot of fun. Um, my, now, try to uh, hold your, you know, either your applause or your hisses at me. Uh, my favorite NFL team is the Dallas Cowboys. I'm a big Dallas Cowboys fan. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, some of you, uh, some of you, I need to preach a little harder at tonight because uh, the way you reacted. But that's okay. Anyway, uh, I'm a big Dallas Cowboys fan, but I also, uh, also, I am, uh, I really enjoy fantasy football. So for those of you who know what fantasy football is, you, you, you feel where I'm at, all right? If you don't know what fantasy football is, let me explain to you real quick. Essentially, you have like, you can pick different players to be on your team, and based on how those players do in their games, you get points for it, and then like, so your team gets a total of points, and then you go up against someone else who has a bunch of players, and whoever has the most points wins. So uh, I, love, I love playing fantasy football, it's awesome. So Sunday, I was playing against so there's like a central league, so to speak, uh, of a handful of people here at the church. And uh, I was playing against Casey Sherman. Some of you know who Casey is. And uh, I was destroying him all Sunday, okay? I was feeling good about myself. It was, I was projected to win easily. I was like, man, I got this in the bag, okay? And I go, uh, so I go to the group connect thing that we had this past Sunday night. Some of you, if you're paying attention on Sunday morning, you know this was coming up. And I'm like, all right, well, like, I'm gonna go to this. I'm gonna have a good time. It's gonna be good, whatever. Uh, after the group connect, I was like, oh yeah, the Cowboys are playing tonight. Let me see how the Cowboys are doing. And the Cowboys, if anyone watched football on Sunday night, it was, it was a slaughter, okay? The Cowboys annihilated the evil New York Giants. And, and, but it was like the Cowboys defense was doing really, really well. And I was like, man, like, I wonder who has the Cowboys defense in fantasy football because I'm sure they got to be getting a lot of points from the Cowboys defense. And I look, and to my horror... Casey Sherman has the Cowboys defense on his team. And what I, when I was, I was destroying him earlier in the day. And now I end up losing by two points because the Cowboys, who are my team, had betrayed me and given all of these points to Casey. And, it, and the reason I say this is that it was really, really hard for me to watch that game because I wanted my team to do well, but I also wanted my fantasy team to do well, and my, my affections were divided, right? Is that I had a passion for this, and I had a passion for this, and the problem is that they couldn't both be what they needed to be at the same time. Right? Well, I loved my fantasy team and I loved my actual team. My interests were divided. And what we're going to see tonight is that very same thing. We're going to see that, that as a Christian, we can't have divided interests. Right? The main point I want us to see tonight is this, is that God does not share space in the temple of man's heart. And the only response to God is either total submission or outright rejection. 
right? That the, the God does not share space in the temple of man's heart, and the only response to God is total submission or outright rejection. Now, this doesn't necessarily, uh, this isn't necessarily an easy pill to swallow for us, especially in a day and age in a culture where we like, hey, we kind of look at life a la carte style, you know, like I'll take this, and I'll take a little bit of this, and I'll take a little bit of this, and, and we apply that to our faith, we apply that to our walk with God, but we need to understand that that's not how Christianity works, We're going to get to that in just a moment, but I think it's important for us to kind of get a little bit of context of where we are. So last week, we talked about this idea of misplaced faith. You guys remember this? You remember this? You awake? You alive? Okay. Last week, we talked about this idea of misplaced faith and the people of Israel taking the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them because they thought that if they brought the Ark, then, then God would have to give them victory and, and, and all of these different things. And we see ultimately that when we have misplaced faith, it leads to drastic consequences. And, and this week, we kind of, we're going to kind of take a, 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 we're going to kind of take a turn, right? So like we're leaving Israel and we're going to go and follow the Philistines because at the end of that battle that we saw last week, the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. They had captured the Ark of the Covenant. And if you know your Old Testament history, or if you've been with us the past few weeks, you've talked about this, that this was, the Ark of the Covenant, was the, mo- the holiest object in all of Israel. It was, to them, it was the symbol of God's presence among his people. It was everything to them. And not only did they lose military-wise, but now the ident- their identity as a nation has been stripped from them. Israel is in shambles. Their army is defeated. They've lost the ark of God. The symbol of God's throne and glory amongst his people is gone. They're seemingly leaderless, and in their minds, surely God has abandoned them. Now, 1 Samuel's going to take a shift, right? It's kind of like in those TV shows where the narrator says, like, meanwhile, you know, meanwhile, back at the Hall of Justice, for those of you who know what I'm talking about, right? Like, it's like, okay, so like, all right, you have the Israelites, but now we're going to go, all right, meanwhile with the Philistines. We're going to kind of leave Israel. We're going to see, okay, what do the Philistines do with the ark? They have this ark. What are they going to do with it? If you know your Old Testament, you know that Israel eventually gets the ark back, you know, so the ark doesn't stay gone forever. They eventually get it back. But the question you have to ask is, all right, well, how do they get it back? And what happens to the ark while it is gone? Well, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 1. It says, when the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Ashdod is, by the way, one of the five cities of the Philistines, right? So the land of the Philistines is really divided up, and there's five major city-states. Ashdod is one of them. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, Dagon had, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Now, before we even really get into our main point, I think that there's an important side note that we have to address here, right? The, the author of 1 Samuel was making it very, very clear to his readers that the Ark of the Covenant has been taken, 
We see in chapter 4, it is mentioned several times the ark has been captured. We see it is actually the last thing mentioned in chapter 4. And in doing so, it is the, the, the daughter-in-law of Eli basically says that the ark has been taken and the glory of God has departed from Israel. So it's very, very important that we see this. And I think it's, an, uh, as a side note, it's important for us to see that the very thing that Israel had placed their faith in, God had removed. Isn't that interesting? That the very thing that Israel had set up, had, had placed their faith in that could not save them, God removes from them. God removes the very thing that was distracting his people from them. The very thing that the people of Israel had placed their faith in had been taken from them. And if you remember from last week, right, we talked about this idea that Israel had a misplaced faith. I think, and while we could look at this as an act of judgment on God's part, God judging them, by misplacing their faith, so he takes that, the, the object of their faith away, I think what we should see is this is actually a great act of mercy that God, that God graciously gives to his people. And the reason I say that is this. It's because God loves his people so much that he removes the object of their misplaced faith because they're, for the purpose of focusing him, them back on him. Does that make sense? That what was the object of their faith, God removed so that it could no longer be misplaced faith. You with me? So I just think that that's an important side note that we got to hit before we kind of dive in tonight. So we're continuing on, right? Back with, meanwhile, with the Philistines, right? Meanwhile, back in Ashdod, we see a couple things. First thing we're going to see tonight is this, an attempt to compromise, an attempt to compromise. Verse 1, Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Dagon was one of the pagan gods of the Philistines. He was essentially like a half-man, half-fish-looking god, and he was strange-looking. But to them, he was, he, was, he was like one of the main gods of the Philistines. He is... Uh, and from a mythological standpoint, the, the son of Baal, who comes up multiple times throughout the Old Testament. He was a god of fertility, a god of, of, of prosperity uh, for the people of the Philistines. And they take the Ark of the Covenant and they place it in a temple that was built for Dagon. And they set the Ark of God next to Dagon. Now I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the Philistines for a second. Put yourself in their shoes, right? We saw last week that when the Ark of the Covenant entered the camp of the Israelites, what was their response? They were terrified, right? They were terrified. They're like, oh my goodness. Like, they, they had heard the stories. They're like, man, they, they've heard the stories of God defeating the Egyptians, and they've heard these stories. And, but what they do is they say, you know what? Hey, we're going to bolster our faith. They, you know, literally they say, hey, it's time. To, let's, let's be men and let's go. What happens is they ultimately defeat Israel. They come away victorious and they capture the Ark of the Covenant. And in their minds, in their minds, their, their gods have brought them victory, not only over Israel, but over the God of Israel. I think it's important that we see that. This was, to the Philistines, this was far more than just a military victory. This was a religious victory. That their gods had brought them victory over the God of Israel. And to their understanding, no one had ever really experienced this before. That the God of Israel was defeated and, and, and they have the Ark of the Covenant as a trophy of their victory over the God of the Israelites. And clearly, like, man, it is, uh, it is all sorrow and weeping in Israel, but it is a party in the land of the Philistines. 
Life is good. Man, we, we, we got it going right now. Our God defeated their God, and we got it. So what they do is they take, they take God, so to speak, and they kind of welcome him to his new home. They're like, you're going to love it here. Right? They, they go into the temple of Dagon, and they, they, they place God next to Dagon. And they're all right, all right, you know, God, Dagon, Dagon, God. You guys are going to love, you know, you guys are going to get along great. They're like, you two get along, you two play nice, and, and we'll see you in the morning. Right? They, 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 they place this, they place the ark next to Dagon. They politely walk God into the temple that they had already constructed, and they place him next to their other gods. And what you see here is what we see oftentimes in many professing Christians' lives, is that they treat God as an accessory to their temple. That God is simply an accessory to their temple and nothing more. The Philistines are treating God like an accessory to the temple of Dagon. They, they, kind of, they place him next to these other false gods, and they enjoy him kind of like somebody enjoys a piece of furniture or a piece of decor in their living room. It just kind of spices the place up a little bit. Like, it's nice to have. It's a nice addition to what we have. And here's the thing, guys. This is the sad reality for many people who claim to be followers of Jesus. Many people who claim to be followers of Jesus, he's simply an accessory to the temple of their hearts and nothing more. He's just an accessory. He's just something that spices up their life a little bit. He's a side piece to their life. He's just a, he's just a, he's a side attraction. He's a side piece that they kind, of, they kind of place in their life. They take him and they, they place him on the shelf next to all of their other gods. And then they go about their days. And here's the thing I want to ask you. I really want you to be honest with yourself this morning. Is this your relationship with God? Is this what your relationship with God consists of? That you kind of treat him like a house guest. Right? You, you, you plan, he comes over, and, and, and maybe you clean up the house a little bit before he gets there, and you're like, all right, God, you, hey, go ahead, grab a seat on the couch. And then you introduce him to all of the other gods that you have, you know, like, you know, the god of approval, or the god of money, or the god of relationships, or the god of success, or the god of sports, or all these different things. And, and, hey, God, just, you guys enjoy yourselves. Let me know if you need anything. Is that your relationship with God? See, where's this mentality come from? This mentality that God can just be like, like, a, like, like a side piece to your life, that, that God can be just simply a nice accessory to your outfit of religion. Where does this mentality come from? Because we need to ask this, because this mentality is far more widespread than we care to admit. I'd be willing to say that everyone in this room battles this on a daily basis. It comes from having a low view of God. Ultimately, that's what it is. We saw this last week in the, when we talked about the importance of having a right view of God, but we, need to, we see it again here, right? They, think about it. They believed that their gods had defeated the God of Israel. They were convinced that, that, that that's the only explanation. So automatically, we already see that they have a low view of God. And here's the thing, their low view of God shows itself by the fact that they place him next to a false god. They place him next to Dagon, which is false, which is false in reality, but to them is very real. To them is very real. 
Likewise, I want you to understand something. You can tell what you think of God based on what uh, often competes with him for your affections. I'll say that again. You can tell what you think of God based on what competes with him for your affections. Again, this is, this is no different than what many Christians do today. And if we're honest, this is what many of us in this room do. There are so many things in our lives that are lesser things that compete for our hearts. They compete for our devotion. They compete for our affections and, and our contentment. And they compete with God for these things. And we are so prone to give, them, give ourselves to these lesser things. See, your view of God is made evident in how exclusively you worship him. Hey, here's the thing I want you to understand. We're going to get to this here in just a second. That the problem is not that they worshiped Dagon instead of God. The problem is they thought they could worship both. You with me? I don't care if you come in here on Sundays or Tuesdays and you think you are worshiping God exclusively. That's great. If you're not worshiping God exclusively during the rest of your week, then you're actually not worshiping him appropriately when you're here. The problem was not worshiping Dagon instead of God. The problem was thinking they could worship both. And I want you to know that your problem is not that you choose these other things over God or that you worship these other things over God. Oftentimes your problem is that you think you could worship both. You think you can worship approval from others and God. You think you can worship sports and God. You think you can worship relationships and God. And I'm here to tell you, and Scripture is here to tell you, that you can't. It is all or nothing. I'm going to give you an example. When I married my wife, Kayla, when I married my wife, Kayla, I devoted myself exclusively to her. You with me? I devoted myself exclusively to Kayla. No other woman would get from me what only Kayla gets from me. Kayla has my heart, she has my devotion, and she has my very life if it were to come to that. There is nothing that I hold back from my wife. Know this, if you tell me something, my wife will know. It's just the way it goes. And if you tell my wife something, guess what? I will know. I hold nothing back from my wife. And here's the thing, is that there are things that are for her that are exclusively for her. I am devoted in no, to no other person this way, other than God himself. Nothing is held back from my wife. And I made that commitment to her because I saw her as worth it. And I keep that commitment to her, one, because it was a commitment I made to her and God, but also because I still see her as worth it. See, in comparison to every other woman, I see Kayla as supreme. And it is because of that she has my total devotion. See, I'm going to be real. There is no desire in my heart to cheat on my wife. Want to know why? Because in my eyes, I have the best one. And I want you to see, but now I want you to think about it this way. Suppose that it wasn't that way. Suppose that I told you I loved my wife, but at the same time I went around cheating on her. Openly. Openly. Not even trying to hide it. Openly cheating on my wife. 
If I gave to other women the things that should be exclusively to her, that, and then what, what, what does this do? What does this reveal to you about the way that I view Kayla? It shows you that I don't actually see her as supreme. It shows you that I don't actually view her as wonderful as I say that I view her. It shows you that I don't love her above all others. Likewise, you cannot see God as supreme and ultimate and at the same time place him next to idols and false gods. You can't. And some of you may be saying, Mike, that seems a little harsh, right? That seems a little too far. That seems a little too extreme. Well, I want you to see that the Bible says that the purpose of marriage is to reflect the gospel. All throughout the Old Testament, when God speaks to the people of Israel, he compares them to an unfaithful wife. An unfaithful wife that they, com- they continually commit adultery against their husband, against God. And you know what? I'll, I, I'll agree with you on this. You're right. Maybe it is not a great comparison. You're right, because your devotion to God is so much more important. So much more important. You, can't, you cannot see, say that God is supreme and ultimate while at the same time committing adultery uh, against him with all of these other false gods in your life. Something doesn't line up. And I want you to notice something else, right? It appears, doesn't it appear to you that God is far more patient with the Philistines than he is with Israel? I mean, that that's clearly seems to be the case, right? We, we just read in the last chapter that the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were killed in battle because they didn't take seriously their job as priests. We'll see later on in the Old Testament that Uzzah is struck dead because he touches the ark. You'll see later in 1 Samuel chapter 6 that when the Ark of the Covenant is brought back, the Philistines eventually get to a point where they don't want it anymore, and they put it on a cart with being pulled by two cows, and when the Israelites find it, they touch it, and they open it, and they look inside, and God strikes 70 of them dead because they profane God's holiness. Meanwhile, the Philistines are ushering in the Ark into a temple dedicated to a false god. Why is that? Why is it that God seems to be so patient with the Philistines and he seems to be so swift to act quickly against the Israelites? And the reason is this, because the people of Israel should and do know better. They know better. They know better. God is patient, yes, But you and I need to understand that your problem, if you come in here on a regular basis, your problem is not ignorance. I can tell you that. My goal is I want to preach in a way that you stand before God and you have no excuse. You can't say, well, my pastor never told me. And you know what? Look, I'm not perfect and I fall short. But if you're in this room, you have zero excuse. You know better. I know better. That's the crazy thing. I know better. And I fall short on this all the time. Israel has seen God deliver them time and time again. The law was given to them. The prophets were given to them. They know who God is, and yet they still treat him like an accessory. 
Many of you in this room, you have experienced God in incredible ways, and yet you are guilty of doing the exact same thing that the Philistines did. What they did out of ignorance, think about this, what they did out of ignorance, we do willfully and with full knowledge. That should, that should kind of like cut you. What the Philistines did out of ignorance, you and I do every day knowing that we do it. And that, that, this should not be, guys. This should not be. Now I want you to see what happens when God is placed in this temple. When God is placed next to Dagon, what happens? It says, and when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and placed him back in his place. Now, there's a lot that we can get into into this. There's a lot that we can talk about, but I want to point out just a couple things. The Philistines had brought God into their temple. And when I say brought God, they, they brought the Ark of the Covenant that symbolized God's presence amongst his people. Okay? That's what I, so they, they kind of, they brought God into their temple. And what we see is that immediately things start to happen. Things start to change. I want you to see just, uh, I want you to see something very important in this passage, and it's this. God, while he, you may make him an accessory, God will not remain an accessory. God refuses to remain an accessory. The first thing that needed to change for the Philistines was that they needed to see that God was not defeated. While they thought that God was defeated, they are quickly going to learn that is not the case. They're quickly going to learn that is not the case. In fact, not only is he not defeated, but he is far greater than they possibly could imagine. Likewise, you and I need to see that we need to see God more accurately. I think one of the, the, the greatest things you could strive for in your life is to know God rightly. To know God accurately. And not just to know God accurately, but to then love this God that you grow to know. Let's be honest, right? Satan knows God accurately. But to know God for who he actually is and to love him for who he actually is, that's the greatest thing you could possibly have in your life. Not a sports scholarship, not good grades, not a lot of money, not a lot of people loving you. See, all of these things that you bow down to in your life ultimately bow down to the sovereignty of God. They worshiped Dagon, and then they walk in and find Dagon face down before the ark. That these things that you bow down to and I bow down to, if we're honest, ultimately bow to the sovereignty of God. People's opinion of you does not matter in the presence of the holiness of God. Your relationships fall down flat in the presence of God. Your hopes, your desires fall flat before the presence of God. And please see this, guys, that God never falls and God never fails. Notice who falls over here. Is it God? Is it the ark? No. God never falls. God never fails. God is the one constant thing in your life. I want you to know that, guys, is that all of these things in your life change. People change. Relationships change. How much money you make changes. The school you go to changes. 
even the most permanent relationships in my life eventually like you know scripture says it is appointed for each man a time to die while I, I hate to think about that it's reality even the most permanent relationships in my life are not permanent but God is do not sacrifice what is temporary or do, sorry do not sacrifice what is permanent in favor of that which is temporary Everything else you worship in your life will let you down, but God never will. Notice that the Philistines had to place Dagon back in his place. You see that? That Dagon has fallen over, and they pick him back up and put him back where he needs to be. Please hear this. Anything that must be sustained by you is not worthy of you worshiping it. Look at the irony of this. They're convinced that God was defeated... Meanwhile, they got to pick their God up and put him back where he belongs. And we laugh. But all of the things that compete for your affections, how often do you find yourself having to sustain those things? Having to hold them up, having to pick them up when they fall down. You see, this is what happens when man encounters God, right? At first, they think they can simply place him next to the other idols and objects of worship that they have. They think they can just kind of put a slip him in there and, and everything's going to be good. Like, I like this Jesus thing. I like this. This is good. When you see Paul in the book of Acts, chapter 17, when he goes to Athens and he starts to proclaim the gospel, the people in Athens, what do they do? They say, hey, like, what are you talking about? We want to hear more about this. Why? Because what did they do? They just took the gods that they heard of and they added them to the rest of their gods. Eventually, you'll learn that it doesn't work like that. It's a futile effort. We exhaust ourselves because the gods we worship are held up by us. And it's silly. You want to know why you're potentially, why you're so stressed out? Why you're so miserable all the time? Could it be that you're desperately trying to keep Dagon on the same throne as God? And every time God forces Dagon to fall over, you keep trying to pick him back up? Perhaps that's why you're so miserable. Look at rates of depression amongst teenagers today and rates of suicidal thoughts of which many of you in this room, I know for a fact because you have spoken to me about this, have struggled with. And I don't mean to oversimplify something that's like desperately serious please understand that I'm not trying to oversimplify but I do want to point out to you potentially the problem is that you have two things competing for the throne of your heart and whenever God tries to push one thing out you keep trying to bring it back in and you're wearing yourself out and you're exhausting yourself even good things when they become ultimate things become bad things Could it be that in your attempts to treat God like an accessory, you're struggling with the reality that he will not settle for that? See, when God enters the temple of man's heart, all things bow down to him. And this is one way that you can tell if you're actually a Christian. 
even if you don't do this perfectly, because none of us do, we all struggle with this, but do you have a desire to surrender all things to God? Even though you may struggle with it, So we continue on, verse 4. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen down face face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. You see that? They're like, all right, well, they pick him up. And they're like, all right, you good? You good? All right, right, sweet, sweet. Cool. All right, man, you got it. All right, we'll be back. We'll see you tomorrow. They come back in. Now, not only has he fallen over, but now his head and hands have broken off. There's only the trunk of him left. See, as we continue, we see that eventually Dagon not only falls down, but now Dagon is destroyed. His head and his hands have broken off and he continually falls down before God. Here's something I also want you to see. When God enters the temple of your heart, all idols bow down to him, but for so many, and, uh, but, sorry, but for so many, and I, if I'm brutally honest, say, uh, if, even in this room, if I were to walk into the temple of your heart, God is the one that's face down in your heart, not the other idols that you have. If we're brutally honest, if we could kind of take this and, and, and superimpose it into our lives, if I was to walk into the heart, the temple of your heart, what I would find is probably God bowing down. How do I know this? Let's just think about it. How many times when you have the choice between God and something else, do you choose something else? If we're being generous 75% of the time, if we're being generous, Why is that? Why is that? Let me just ask you a question. Don't answer out loud. Do you love Jesus? Not, do you go to church? Not, do you read your Bible? Do you love God? Not just want to study. I mean, do you love him? You are passionate about him. You want to get to know him. Your life is dedicated. I'll go where you tell me to go. Do you love Jesus? Or are you more focused on coming in here and talking and being funny? How can we say that we love Jesus when we can't even give him like an hour of our day? without being on our phones. Do you love him? Is he on your mind? Like I've said before, many of us say we love Jesus, but what's going on in the temple of our hearts would show a different story. I want you to hear this illustration. This is an illustration from David Platt. It is not from me. The reason I bring that up is because it is a fantastic illustration, and I don't want you to think that I'm that cool. I'm not, all right? But it's just, it's, it's, it's so good that I want you to hear this, all right? So just for the next, if nothing else, just like a minute or so, look up at me. No phones, no nothing. Don't even take notes. Just listen to this. Imagine for a moment that you live in another country. 
one completely foreign to this one, and you have an opportunity one fall to spend a week in Birmingham, Alabama, which is where his church was located. So you come on a Sunday morning and you observe many people, maybe even most, slowly rising to make their way to a building that they call a church. They groggily approach that building for some sort of ceremony. Clearly, whatever happens at the beginning of that ceremony isn't that important because most people don't come until after it has started. You watch them file in and begin to mouth the words to songs, many of them almost expressionless, virtually emotionless. After which, they sit down and passively listen to someone talk to them for, uh, for a period of time. You notice that people start to get a bit fidgety and uneasy as the time for the ceremony to end approaches. And when it's finally over, they quickly walk out. As you walk with them, you listen to them, and you hear many of them talking with one another about something that happened the previous day. They smile and they laugh as they recount another ceremony that they had been to that was apparently a bit more interesting than this one. A ceremony that apparently happens on Saturdays. In fact, the rest of the week, that's almost all you hear people talking about, the coming Saturday ceremony. Even the people who are at the Sunday ceremony are strangely silent about what they heard and sang about there, but very enthusiastic about the Saturday that can't seem to get there soon enough. As your curiosity is piqued, you begin to eagerly anticipate this coming Saturday. Saturday comes, and you see people wake up and leave their houses dressed in some sort of outfit that they love to wear for these types of occasions. Many of them drive out of the city, some an hour west, others a couple hours south, where they gather together on what they call hallowed grounds for that Saturday ceremony. They get there early for this ceremony, way early where they eat and drink and laugh and play, not just with their family or with their friends, but even complete strangers. You've never seen community like this. When the time comes, they all, tens of thousands of them, enter a shrine. You can't think of another word for it. Where they raise their voices with passion to applaud an assembly of children that they don't know playing a game on a field. As that game begins, they shout and chant and sing until they virtually lose their voices with far more passion than the previous Sunday ceremony, for sure. People don't look at their watches at this ceremony. They're so engulfed in what they're seeing and experiencing that they actually get excited when it goes into what they call overtime. Because going long like this is a sign of a really exciting game. And the fun doesn't end after the ceremony is over anyway. When the boys everyone has been cheering for win the game, the celebration has only begun. And the amazing thing is that it's not just the people who are at the ceremony who are celebrating. You come to find out that thousands and thousands of others stayed back at home to watch this game on a TV. Though many of them are large enough to be virtual movie screens. They're actually designed that way to make the watching of most of the, sorry, to make the most of watching ceremonies like this. And back in Birmingham, scores of people have circled up together around their screens to be a part of the ceremony from a distance. They too, in their homes, are jumping up and down and high-fiving each other, celebrating the ceremony when it's over. Then, when it's all over, late in the evening, almost as if there's nothing to be prepared for the next day, they go to bed. And he goes on and he asks this, let me ask you a question. If you were that visitor from another country and you came to this city during a week in the fall, I would ask you to honestly answer this question. Which would you identify as the religion that is the most important to this people? As the religion that most excites this people? As the religion that most consumes these people? The answer is obvious. 
Don't say, see, this is the thing, is that I've said this to you, and I say this about myself, right? Evaluate yourself honestly. Honestly. And I would say, that, and I say this, uh, you know, as Paul would say, as the chief of sinners, right? That the majority of people I know do not have an exclusive love for Jesus. They don't. And you're like, how can you tell that, Mike? How do you know that? Because you can watch them and you can tell. Their affections are placed elsewhere. And this should not be. First thing we see is an attempt to compromise. The second thing we see, this is the last thing, is a refusal to submit. The Philistines now have a drastic choice that is before them. What are they going to do? They clearly see that Dagon and God cannot coexist. Something has to give. Something has to change. So what do they do? Well, we see in the passage that they ultimately resort to superstition. Right? They say, oh, well, we can't tread on the threshold of Dagon, you know, blah, 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 blah. They try to explain it away by some superstitious spiritualism. Clearly, though, that like God is making a point here, but they refuse to acknowledge that point. They refuse to acknowledge the obvious truth, right? Likewise, many of us have the impression that people reject God because either one, they're ignorant, or two, because there's no evidence. You ever hear that? There's no evidence for God. What we see in this case is that there actually is evidence, but they just suppress that evidence. They suppress the truth. What does Romans chapter 1 say? Is that people, what, what, what can be known about God is made clear through creation and through all of these different ways that God has revealed himself, but people in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. People reject God not because they're ignorant, but because they're sinners. And that's what sinners do. That's what all of us, apart from Christ, this is what we would do. It isn't that they don't know. It's that in their sinfulness, they suppress what God has made clear. So they have a choice. They have made their choice. What, have they made, what choice have they made? That they ultimately decide to ship the ark somewhere else, to a different city. If you continue on in verse 6, it says, The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified them and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of God of Israel be brought around to Gath, which is another one of those five cities. So they brought so they brought the ark of God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came, uh, came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. I want you to notice a few things here. They had a couple options. Let's be honest. They could have submitted to God and repented. Um, I mean, initially, as soon as Dagon fell over, they could have been like, man, there's something here. And then Dagon falls over again. They're like, okay, maybe we should, mm, you know. 
And then God starts to afflict them. And at no point do they repent. No, what do they actually do? Is they say, take it somewhere else. Take it somewhere else. The hand of God was heavy upon the Philistines because they wanted because they wanted God amongst them, but they were unwilling to throw away their idols in favor of him. And what you find is that what should have been a blessing to the Philistines, God's presence among them becomes a curse. Why? Because they're unwilling to give God their exclusive worship. And I want you to understand something, guys. Pay attention is that when you're unwilling to give God exclusive worship, what should be a blessing will become a curse. I guarantee it. Also notice that the people of Israel thought they could take the ark and they could win because they have the ark and then they lose. But what we see is that God doesn't need any of them to fight his battles. God fights his own battles. And eventually what happens is they put the ark on a cart with two cows and they send it and it goes right back to Israel. God got himself back. He got the ark back himself. Notice that the Philistines could not remain neutral. No matter how badly they wanted to, they couldn't stay neutral. And this is the entire point. God demands exclusive worship. You see, to the Philistines, it was easier to glue Dagon back together and move the ark around than it was to surrender their lives, to let go of the things that they had placed their faith in, and to submit and repent. And for some of you, that's where you find yourself. You say, you know, like this invitation to, to follow God and to surrender to God, you're like, you know what, it's easier for me to just glue my idols back together every day. It's easier for me to do that than to accept what it may mean for me to walk with Jesus. See, no matter how badly the Philistines thought this, Dagon could not stand with God. They couldn't rightly worship both. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Matthew 7, 13-14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Notice, 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 that we live in a day today that rather than point people to the narrow gate, we want to widen the gate. God doesn't need exclusive worship. You just gotta, you know, what? You know, uh, uh, what? Admit, believe, and confess. Or follow the Roman road. Or pray the sinner's prayer. Or, you know, you do your best and keep God first, whatever that means, and you just kind of do your thing and, and ultimately, no, no, no. God demands exclusive worship. The way is narrow. We live in a day that will not say that. But I'm telling you right now, if you think you can enter that narrow gate by worshiping God and all of these other things, you are mistaken. And I'm desperately pleading with you to stop giving yourself to lesser things. We're called to surrender all that we have to him. And why is that? Why can we surrender to God? Because he did not hold anything back from us. Think about this. 
as the band comes up, and I actually am going to close on time so that we can have a closing song. Thank you, Corbin. The reason, here's the thing. Jesus on the cross gave everything for you so that you could give everything for him. And here's the thing, is that when you give everything to, to God, it's still not more than what Jesus gave for you. Some of you in this room, the things that you're trying to worship alongside God, maybe it's your own desires. Maybe it's, there's things that you want that God has clearly said no, but you're refusing to accept that. Maybe for some of you, like sports holds a place in your heart that it shouldn't. Maybe for some of you, there's relationships or, or, or a desire for earthly success, whatever it is. Here's what I'm going to invite you to do. Just surrender that to the Lord. Understand that God desires exclusive worship. And here's what I want you to know is that you have not experienced true freedom and true living until you have exclusively worshiped God as the king of kings.